0: Gracious God and Father, thank You that as we gather here this evening, You are able to give to us in our community here a sense of that majesty and glory which one day will fill the whole earth. We pray as You come to us now in and by Your Word that You would Yourself be our teacher and our guide. We pray. That your finger may find the place in the scriptures, that you will point us to its meaning and its application. And we ask that we may be as sure that Jesus Christ is speaking to us through his word as those who heard his living voice by the Sea of Galilee and in the city of Jerusalem. Again, as we come to the end of our day of worship, we thank You that He is the same Jesus, and we pray that by His Word and Spirit we may know this profoundly and powerfully as we read and as we place our lives under the ministry of His Word. This we pray together in Jesus our Savior's name. Amen. Please be seated. Now for any of you who may be visitors this evening or strangers, newcomers to our church family, we have been studying for some time in Paul's letter to the Romans. We began this study actually just about this time last year, if my memory serves me correctly, and in our first study I prophesied that it would take us eighteen months. What I didn't say then, but need to repeat because we are in chapter 6 and it's 12 months later, I didn't say then, but have said occasionally from time to time, I didn't mean that we would have finished the study by the end of this year. I meant it would take us 18 months, and uh, we have had breaks for one reason or another. I think we're probably just a little behind schedule to tell the truth. But this evening we've come to Romans chapter 6 and the section verse 15 through verse 23, although it's particularly the first of these two paragraphs that we're going to concentrate our attention on this evening. So, Paul, who has raised the question in chapter 6 verse 1 in the light of the great statement that where sin abounds, grace abounds, all the more has proven in the first fourteen verses that the Christian does not continue in sin in order that grace may abound all the more. That would be to misunderstand how God's grace in Christ works. And he has ended that by saying in verse fourteen, sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. And Paul knew in every congregation there is a nitpicker, Oh, so we're not under law, are we? And it's the question that follows that he's addressing in these verses. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching, or in some of the older translations, I think better rendered, the form of doctrine or form of teaching— You have become obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were committed or delivered, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God— The fruit you get leads to sanctification, and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't know how many sermons there have been on Romans, and so it may seem rather strange that only at this point in our study do I ask you this question. What was in Paul's heart when he wrote to the Romans? You don't sit down and write a letter by some kind of act of spontaneous mental combustion. You do it because something is in your mind. You need to tell somebody something. You need to respond to something that they have said to you. You've forgotten something or somebody, and you need to write. So, what is in Paul's mind as he writes his letter to the Romans? We know that he's longing to head for Rome, and he's then longing to go to Spain and see the work of the gospel expand in new spheres. But what is really in his heart for the Roman Christians? Well, he tells us in chapter 1 and verse 12, doesn't he? He says, I want to come to you in order that we may be mutually encouraged by one another. Because, verse 11, I want to impart to you some spiritual gift to, now notice the words, in order to strengthen you. Now turn right to the very end of Paul's letter to the Romans and you'll find that that verb is repeated almost in the last sentence of Romans. When he says in chapter 16 and verse 25, as it were, summarizing everything he said in his letter in this marvelous doxology, he speaks now about the God to whom he's committing the Roman Christians, the God who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel. Now, that is what the whole of Romans is in a nutshell. It is the apostle Paul strengthening the Romans through what he calls my gospel. Now, that is an expression he would used much earlier on in the letter in chapter 2. The whole letter to the Romans, it may be many other things, but the whole letter to the Romans is Paul's gospel given to strengthen Christian believers. And just as we sometimes say it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian, it certainly takes the whole of Romans to make a whole Christian. And so, as we think about this letter, marvelous way to think about it is to understand that Paul is preaching his gospel to us. He can't do that to the Romans as one who is present with them, and so he preaches it to them through his letter. And his letter would have been read out in the church as though he were there present preaching it as a sermon. And he wants us to taste and feel the riches of the gospel. Now, where did Paul learn this gospel? he tells us in his letter to the Galatians. He did not learn it from men. He didn't go to somebody and say, will you teach the gospel? He says he got the gospel from Jesus Christ, from the revelation of Jesus Christ to him on the Damascus Road. And to me, it's a very striking thing how much of Paul's exposition of the gospel is indebted to that experience on the Damascus Road, including what he has been teaching us in Romans chapter 6. I say that for this reason. You remember what Jesus' first words were to him, and they are repeated in each of the three accounts of Saul's conversion in the Acts of the Apostles. His first words were, "'Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church?' Is that right? No, his first words were, "'Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me?' And do you see what was implied in that statement? That Paul actually takes many verses of our New Testament to try to help us to understand. What is implied in that statement when Saul was persecuting Christians, but Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Implied in that statement is that there is a relationship of union and communion between the Lord Jesus Christ and all those who belong to Him so that all the riches of Jesus Christ are theirs, and all the communion with Jesus Christ is theirs. And all the persecutions they experience are his. And in so many different places, what Paul is saying to Christians is this. Don't you understand what it means that you've been united like this to the Lord Jesus Christ? In a way, it's the very heart of his understanding of what it means to be a Christian, which is why his most frequent way of saying Christian is to use the expression in Christ, united to Christ. And we have been seeing from chapter 5 verse 12 right through to this present section how Paul says glorious things happen to us when we are united to Christ. We are no longer united to Adam. We are no longer in that old family, in that old kingdom. We are now in the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are out of the kingdom of darkness, and we are into the kingdom of life. We are out of the kingdom in which sin reigns, and we have been brought into the kingdom where grace reigns to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, which is how He would ended chapter 5 and he has been pondering this and expounding this to these Roman Christians. He says, don't you understand what your baptism means? That in union with Jesus Christ you have died to sin's dominion, you have been set free, and now you have been raised with Jesus Christ, and you belong to Him. And this glorious thing is true of you, as he says in verse 14, sin will have no dominion over you. That's not a command. He is not saying, don't let sin have dominion over you. That's important, but it's not what he's saying in verse 14, is it? This is not a command. This is a glorious promise to believers because we are no longer under the dominion of sin, sin will no longer have dominion over us. Yes, the presence of sin is real. The presence of sin in your heart and my heart is powerful. But you and I as Christian believers, if we are in Christ, are no longer under sin's dominion. We are under Jesus Christ's dominion, because we are no longer under law. We are no longer condemned by the law because we are in Jesus Christ, and He has tasted the condemnation of the law. We are under grace. Grace upon grace pours down upon our lives, and we need to learn to live out of that grace in our union with Jesus Christ. And once we have grasped this union with Jesus Christ, it's then that Paul comes in and he says, now you're ready for some rigorous commands about the nature of the Christian life. But unless we're conscious of the grace, unless we're conscious of the union with Christ, of the new identity that's been given to us, those commands will crush us Unless we know that in this blessed fellowship we have with the Lord Jesus, there are resources that will enable us to be obedient to our Lord Jesus Christ. One of our discerning members, she will be delighted to know that I am describing her as a discerning member. I think probably hardly anybody knows who she is because she said this privately, She said, I noticed one Sunday evening, you said about 11 times, we are the kind of people who died to sin, which is what Paul says at the beginning of this chapter. That's the kind of people we are. And Paul brings that out by the very language he uses. We belong to a certain category. You belong to a certain category. Most of you in this room, but not all of you, belong to the category of Americans, And there are situations to which you respond and you say, we are Americans. And there are sometimes the same situations to which I respond and say, but I am a Scotsman. That's what I am by definition. There is no escaping it. And I've been a Scotsman so long. I look like a Scotsman. I sound like a Scotsman. And no matter where I am, I act like a Scotsman so that nobody thinks I'm from around here any more than if I transported you to Scotland. Anybody would think you were from around there, because by definition, by constitution, Paul is saying the same thing. You cannot be a Christian, but that it is true of you that you are somebody who has been brought out of the dominion of sin into the dominion of of the grace of Jesus Christ, and no longer under law, but under grace. But as I said, there are always these strange people in Paul's congregations who want to ask these strange questions. Well, I think there is a problem there, and it is interesting to notice how Paul answers this second question in verse 15 in a rather similar way to the way in which he answered the first question. Do you notice that? question one, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Answer part A, by no means. Answer part B, don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death and resurrection, and thereby, in union with Jesus Christ, we are no longer in that old kingdom? Don't you know now, my dear friends, this is one of the great problems of the 21st century evangelical church. The truth is we don't know. The truth is we want to do. But Paul is saying before doing comes knowing, and before knowing comes being. And we are obsessed as Christians, by responding to Paul in things like this, saying, but this is actually quite difficult to understand, Paul. Give me another way. Give me something to do. But you see, Paul won't give you something to do. He wants to give you something to understand, something to know. That's why several times here in this section, in chapter 6, verse 3, chapter 6, verse 16, and then again in chapter 7, verse 1, he's appealing to these Roman Christians, don't you know this? My dear friends, the truth about most evangelical Christian people, as far as I can understand in the world in which we're living, is the answer is, no, I don't know these things. I've been running around doing so many things, And I've no longer got the patience to know what the gospel is true and saying about me. And it's difficult to understand, so just give me something to do. And Paul is saying, in the name of Jesus Christ, will you not understand? That's not how the gospel changes your life. That's not how the gospel changes your character. And that's what Paul has set his heart upon, that the gospel should change my character so that it's embedded into me that God has changed my life. And yet there's something in me that keeps saying to Paul, now just make it, just make it simple for me. Just give me three things to do. This is a difficult chapter to understand i sing oh, don't you get it? Don't you see that the single most important thing for you to understand if you're going to live the Christian life in the sweet grace of Jesus Christ is to understand who you now are in Jesus Christ before you do? we were laughing at home during the week because something reminded us. It happens to us from time to time. Often it's on the telephone. We want to get something done or get somebody to do something for us. And they say, what's the name? And we say, it's Ferguson. What's that name? And we say, it's Ferguson. Once you've said that ten times, it actually becomes difficult to pronounce your own name. What's that name? Ferguson? 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 And we started, as you were laughing, we started laughing, remembering when we were shortly in the United States, in Philadelphia. It was, in, it was I think, in the summer of 1983. It was a hot summer. Our little two year old girl was lying perspiring on the couch, and Dorothy was trying to explain to somebody that the name was Ferguson. And she began to spell it out. F-E-R-G, and she heard from the other room where our little two-year-old was lying semi-comatosed, she heard this very young, very female, and very irritated voice saying, F-E-R-G-U-S-O-N, and everything It was enough from the beginning. Everything in that little voice was saying, don't you people get who we are? (laughs) Do we need to spell it out for you? But you see, that's the truth, isn't it? We go through life from day to day, and, and we forget who we are. And so, Paul is saying, Dear brothers and sisters in Rome, don't you know this? Don't you understand the gospel? Because if you understood the gospel, you would never say things like, are we to sin? Because we are not under the law, but under grace. You would understand that the grace in Jesus Christ that delivers you from the condemnation of the law, delivers you from the condemnation of the law in order to hand you over in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, so that you who once were slaves of sin, as he says in verse 17, have now been handed over to be the slaves. And you notice how it's in verse 19, isn't it? He almost, he almost says, I'm, I'm, sorry if, I'm sorry if it offends you if I'm, if I'm using the slavery language, but I don't have any other language that really well expresses what I want to say to you. There's much more to the Christian life than this. Of course, there's much more than this. But you do understand that you used to be slaves to sin, and now what you've become You see how he's explaining how the gospel works in our lives, what grace effects in our lives, is it delivers us from our slavery to sin, but it keeps us as slaves. But now our slavery is to a great and gracious master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is nothing in between. There is no autonomy in between. There is no, I am free for myself in between, because that freedom for self that stands in between is just another way of speaking about our bondage to sin, because what we were made for was to be the joyful, happy, delighted bond slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ and of His heavenly Father. And to know that amazing intricacy of Christian experience in which we delight simultaneously in being the sons and daughters of the living God and having free access to Him, and at the same time regarding ourselves happily and joyfully as His bond slaves. Saying, O oh, dear brothers and sisters, don't you know what the gospel has done? Don't you understand how grace works in the life of the believer? The grace that frees you from the condemnation of the law and from servitude to sin is a grace that sets you free to live for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and as His happy bond servant. That's something that needs to get into my head. That's something I need to understand. And there's something about this, there's something in me that says, just give me another way because this takes time. Yes, it takes time. It takes all my time And I need to pour myself into this, Lord, what is this passage really saying? Help me to take it in, and then help me to sense its power in my life. But my instinct is to say, just, just give me a shortcut, isn't it? I know that's my instinct, and it may well be yours. Just give, me a, just give me a few things I can do. Just kind of bring it down to just a few things I can do, because, because that's enough for me. But you see, the gospel understands that doing things is not how character is transformed. Doing things is the result of character being transformed. Now, I understand this reaction. Some of you know our oldest boy does something mysterious in the world of computing. He belongs to that generation, perhaps the first generation, for whom a computer was simply a personality extension. And I remember going to him when he was 13, certainly no older than 14, and saying to him, David, give me, just give me a few quick commands to do this. They're all in the manual, Dad. I said, I know they're all in the manual, Dad, but the, the, the manual wasn't written by somebody whose native language is English. They are all in the manual, Dad. Just read them. They're all in the manual, Dad. I said to him one day, exasperated by this uh, that he displayed in the midst of my difficulties and frustration. He said, but David, I don't have time to read the manual. He was certainly no more than 14, and I think 13. He looked at his watch and said, I'm sorry, Dad. I don't have time today to give you a few quick commands. Now, I'd like to live the Christian life that way let me live the Christian life with six verses of the New Testament, and then I'll be perfectly happy. No, says Paul, if you don't have time to meditate on this and take this in, God who possesses all eternity does not have time to give you a cheap way for the transformation of your character." Now, why is this so important? i tell you why this is so important. There is no nation in the world, as far as I know, statistically, with more people who claim to be born again. Isn't that the truth? But certainly sociologists question whether that makes one whit of difference to the lifestyle of Christian churches. Why? Because, you see, we're so interested in doing a few things that will make a difference that we don't have the patience to understand the gospel needs to make a difference to us. And Paul, as I've said before, will come on to this in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, surely, surely, among the most famous verses in this book that most of us know off by heart when he answers the question, what is it that transforms lives? And his answer? It is what happens in people's minds, first of all. It is when we take the gospel in and the revolutionary transformation it makes to our identity. And so, he says now, I beseech you, by the mercies of God, present yourselves as living sacrifices to God. Don't be conformed to this world. Oh my, that God would produce a people who are not conformed to this world. But this world has enormous power on Christians' lives as it squeezes us into its mold. How are we going to be changed? How are we going to resist? How are we going to be different? But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so, part of the burden of this message is to beg you to study this chapter. We will not be in it much longer. But I beg you to study this chapter. I beg you not to think we've now had five sermons in this chapter. We can go on, and I understand it all. I'd be amazed if you understand it all. I certainly don't understand it all. And we need to invest our time in this. We need to get away on our own. Because you see, we're fast becoming a race in the modern world where we never get away on our own with our Bibles, and study our Bibles, and feed on our Bibles, and let the truth of the gospel transform us. So this is an appeal, my dear brothers and sisters, this is an appeal from my heart to get into the Word, that it change the way you think about what the gospel has done to you. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. And that's why we no longer live to ourselves, but we live to Him who died for us and rose again. And when men and women understand that they are new creations and that the church is a new creation, that it's totally different from the old creation, even when it's set down in the middle of the old creation, then there is a church that will shine as a light in a dark place and make an impact on the world around us. Now, that brings me to the question that Paul answers, you notice, in these marvelous words in verse 17 and verse 18, because here he is saying to us, I want to explain to you how it is that this will happen to you. I want to explain to you how this has happened. Thank God, he says, this has happened to you. Now look at what he says about how grace has transformed their lives. It once for all takes us out of slavery and bondage to sin and brings us into glad bond service to Jesus Christ, and as that transition takes place, And as worked out in my life, Paul says, now here's what happens. Verse 17, you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching. I think, again, let me say better to translate the form of doctrine to which you were committed Now, what's he saying here? Just follow his points carefully if you can. Number one, we have been delivered to something, and it's implied here we've been delivered by God, and we've been delivered in the proclamation of the gospel. This is the the language that's used throughout the New Testament about about an official handing over. It's God, as it were, in the gospel who has officially handed us over to something. He's given us into the influence of something. Now, what is that something? We've been delivered to the form of doctrine that we find in in the gospel. Now, how did that happen to the Romans? It happens by the ministry of the gospel. That is actually what all this time we spend uh, studying the Scriptures is about. This is what we believe God is doing through the exposition of the Scriptures. He is delivering us over to the forum. The word is actually the word from which we get the words type and typewriter. It's basically the idea of a mold that leaves a shape on something, or a shape that leaves its imprint on something else. And it's an absolutely brilliant way of describing what happens to us when we see Jesus' prayer answered. Father, sanctify them through your truth. Your Word is truth. What happens is that the Spirit begins to work in our lives to mold us, to press us into the divine mold that will shape the very character of our lives. You see that? When I was young and uh, my brother was uh, just under three years older than I remember. One Christmas must have been, boy, it must have been sometime in the early 1950s. Christmas time, we got these uh, these rubber molds. He got one of a clown, and I got one of a seal. And plaster of Paris, you know that you mixed up with water. Uh, the golden old days among us can remember those days. And then you would you would pour it in, and then you were supposed to leave it. And leave it, and leave it, and then you would take the rubber mould off, and lo and behold, uh, and my brother, my brother was really good at these things. There were these magnificent clowns would appear, and I would have seals that had no heads, and things like that. Um, now that's what God is doing. And and if I can if I can say this to you, my dear brothers and sisters, that is what. Here we believe God is doing through the ministry of His Word. He does it by many means, but right at the heart of them is the ministry of the Word. I'm speaking for myself, I almost detest the word sermon. Preaching a sermon, I do not know how to preach a sermon. My passion is not preaching sermons, whether they are good or bad. My passion is that through this Word, in the power of the Holy Spirit, occasions like this in our fellowship and wherever beyond, the Word of God will, as it were, press us into a mold that is shaped like Jesus Christ because later on we'll discover in chapter 8, verse 29, he'll tell us this is actually God's great passion, that He should conform us to the likeness or image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. That's That's what I see is happening when we meet together. I have no interest in preaching sermons, no interest whatsoever. I have no interest in eloquence, No interest whatsoever. I have no interest in using clever vocabulary. No interest whatsoever. But my heart beats with a passion to see the Word of God being employed among us in the power of the Holy Spirit so that it squeezes us with grace, always with grace, and with immense patience even if sometimes with the voice raised, squeezes us into the mold so that more and more the fruit of the Spirit or the likeness to Jesus Christ is reproduced in our lives. Transformed character. Not notice more information, I personally have no interest in stuffing people's minds with theological information, at least not in this context, but to sit under the ministry of the Word as you and I sit under it together, and I as much as you, because I have to listen to this preaching as much as you have, and I've got to listen to it twice on a Sunday morning. Under the Word, putting ourselves under the Word, and the spirit taking the word, and as we discover this is the great thing i think if I think if people say they've never experienced this then they've never actually heard preaching that the Word of God gets places nobody else can reach. It touches parts of our lives, in our conscience, in our spirit, the secrets of our hearts. It deals with us with a penetration that no human being under the sun can possibly deal with because we receive the Word when our hearts have been warmed in worship and our minds are submitted to Him and we are eager for His presence and we know He has done us good and we know it's changing the way we think and changing the way we live. And we begin to realize we are actually different people when we go out of this place and into the world. And sometimes life is shaky and rocky, but we are here and we place ourselves under the ministry of the Word as we are delivered over and over and over and over again to this form of doctrine. And those of us who are weakest and shakiest, we are held together from week to week until we are strengthened And this is God's glorious work, and this is what Paul is saying to these Roman Christians. Thank God this has happened to you. But even as he says it, he says, God's not done with you yet. Don't you know these things? Hasn't this penetrated your psyche? Is this the way you think about yourself? Do you realize what it means to be in Christ and that you are Christ, that He is molding you? You see, you can't stand against the world, as J.B. Phillips translates Romans 12:1 and 2, and say, I'm not going to let the world squeeze me into its mold. You'll never be able to withstand that pressure unless the Lord Jesus Christ is squeezing you into His mold. That's why Paul says this absolutely fascinating thing. He says, you used to be slaves of sin, But now he says, you become servants. You would think he would say, slaves of sin, servants of Jesus Christ. But what he actually says is, you become a servant of obedience, obedience. That's the hallmark. Yes, Lord. That's Christian character. Everything you say, I hear. Everything you command, I do everything you love, I love. Wherever you send, I will go. Whatever you ask, I will give. To whomsoever you bring me, I will care for them. And he's, he's molding me, he's molding me, he's molding me, and he's infinitely patient. I'm not infinitely patient. I'm not infinitely impatient at all. I wasn't as a little boy. I wanted the rubber mold off, even though my brother was saying, Sinclair, it's not set yet. The work's not finished yet. Don't take the mold off. I'm going to take the mold off. It's been down there a minute and a half. Which is why Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, when you teach and preach, do it with careful instruction and great patience, great patience, great, 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 great patience and it changes lives, and it can be sore to be changed. When he begins to cut the edges off, when he begins to say, I think I'll put him beside her, or even more daring, I think I'll put him beside him, and they'll rub the edges off one another as I mold them and shape them. And all happens within the context of the family of the church, and lives are changed, and we begin to notice it. We begin to notice it in one another. And we see, as that Anglican collect says, that bond service to Jesus Christ is perfect freedom. Dr. Jim Augustine gave me a CD at the beginning of last week. Documentary. It's uh, it's somewhere between two and a half and three hours long, and there are a few words quietly spoken in French. That's all. You sit and listen and watch this DVD for almost three hours. You don't hear any English. You hear see a few biblical texts on the screen. And you hear a few words spoken in French somewhere up in the Swiss Alps in a Carthusian monastery where the monks have taken vows of silence. They get the chance to speak every so often. They spend most of their lives praying in cells. They're following the order, I think, of St. Bruno way back about 1100. There are all kinds of orders over the centuries in the Christian church like this. I'd like to start an order. It couldn't be a silent order, but I've got the name for it. I got the name for it from Exodus chapter 21. You remember in Exodus chapter 21 when the slave came to the point where he would be set free, it was possible for the slave to say, and these are the words, these are magic words in my ears, I love my master. I will not go free. And Exodus tells us that if a man were brought to that happy, free bondage to a master, he should be taken to the doorpost, and there a nail would be hammered through his ear. And his ear would be pierced as a tiny little sign that he would always listen to the voice of his master. And glad and happy obedience, and develop a character that was in tune to all the wishes of his master. I'd like to start a community, or at least an order that would live in many communities, the order of the pierced ear, the order of the pierced ear. What you say, I will hear. What you command, I will do. Where you send, I will go. What you ask, I will give. Because you have purchased me with your precious blood, I am entirely yours, Lord Jesus Christ. Mold me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Break me, melt me, mold me, fill me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Would you sign up for an order like that? The order of the pierced ear. Because only those who are in the order of the pierced ear are also in the order of the radically transformed Christian character. Thank God. If you were once a slave of sin and now have been delivered, molded into this model of truth that's given to us in Jesus Christ, that's what the gospel does. And when it does it, it's a glorious thing to behold. May He do it among us. Heavenly Father. We confess how Your Word exposes to us and in us our our multifaceted resistances to the rigors of Your working in our lives. We confess the lethargy of our minds and their coldness, that they are not drawn sufficiently by Your Word to love Your Word, to meditate upon it, to Wrestle with it as a dog might wrestle with a bone until all its goodness had been chewed out of it. Oh God, we pray, deliver us from our spiritual sloth and clarify our thinking, Father. We are so cumbered about in our thinking with the voices of the world and the pressures of our time and all these siren voices that invite us here and there. And we are ashamed that there are so many things in Your Word that it tells us about what we are and who we are as Your people that we've never fully taken in. And we cry out to You to help us and to help us to help one another in this. But we thank You that by Your grace, we have come to You and we have asked You to pierce our ears. That we might be entirely yours. And we pray, as our eyes are opened by your grace to all you do in us, they might likewise be open to all you're doing in our brothers and in our sisters. And that we may become a happy and numerous company in this city of those who are entirely surrendered to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And this we pray for His great name's sake.